From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We have with us today an expert in aphasia. Ellen Riley, a research assistant professor in neurology at Upstate and an assistant professor in communication sciences and disorders at SU, as well as the director of the Syracuse University Aphasia Lab. Welcome, welcome Ellen. Thank you. Okay, so what is aphasia? Well, so aphasia is a communication disorder that focuses on um, difficulty processing language. And this often occurs as a result of damage to the brain, so damage specifically to language areas of the brain. So this can manifest as difficulty, um, difficulty understanding language or difficulty expressing language. And that can be spoken language, so understanding speech, or it could also be written language, understanding um, and understanding uh, written words, so reading or expressing. Wow. So what area of the brain, is, is it in the front, on the sides, in the back? What area of the brain are we talking so about? So typically we're talking about the left hemisphere of the brain. So okay. language networks are fairly complex. So you might hear terms like you know, Broca's area or Wernicke's area as being involved in the language network. And those, those are areas are involved in the language network, but now we know that there's a very complex uh, in complex involvement of a lot of different brain areas, but mostly in the left hemisphere. Now, it's um, a brain injury or a brain disease? Or- uh, so it can be um, from a variety of different causes. So the primary cause of aphasia is from stroke. So most people who end up with aphasia have it as a result of stroke. But this can come from um, any kind of brain injury, so like a traumatic brain injury or an infection or um, a, um, a brain tumor or even a neurodegenerative disease like dementia. So does it, um, I guess, depending on the cause, does it, is it a gradual, does aphasia develop gradually or is it a, a, something that happens quickly? Yeah, so depending on the cause, so typically with, uh, with a stroke, it's going to happen quickly. So at, when, the, when the stroke happens, then the damage from the stroke will then cause the aphasia and possibly other co-occurring disorders. And then, but if it happens from something else like um, a, a, grow, a slow-growing tumor or from... Uh, like a dementia, then the then the process is going to become be more gradual. So, does it ever get better? I mean, you you hear people that have a stroke and they they do recover somewhat. If you have aphasia, does it ever go away or get better? Yeah. So everybody has a very different pattern. So it's something it's something that we're in the the re- the, the aphasia research world. We're trying to we're trying to address that question a little bit better. Um, and try to predict, have better predictors for how somebody is going to recover from aphasia. But we do know that people do recover, maybe not to the extent um, where they're communicating the same as they did before the stroke, but um, definitely with uh, with the application of other kinds of treatments. So um, there's some spontaneous recovery that occurs within the first few months after a stroke. And then with the addition of things like speech therapy, that can also um, help improve recovery outcomes, more specifically for language, speech and language. Okay. All right. Um, Now, if I understand you correctly, you can lose the ability to speak but can you retain the ability to understand speech? Yes. So depending on the type of aphasia that you have, so wherever, so say going back to the stroke example, so if you have a stroke um, and it's in usually in the more anterior front 
parts of the brain, you're more likely to have what we might call more of an expressive aphasia, so more difficulty producing language, but you might be okay for understanding language. Um, Vice, you know, Vice versa, you could have a more of a posterior kind of damage and then have more difficulty understanding language and less difficulty producing language. So there can be differences. But so typically, it's very individualized. It is extremely like. individualized. But typically, people who have aphasia have some level of difficulty across the different, um, b- across both uh, expression and uh, comprehension. Okay. Um, how prevalent is aphasia in the United States? So it's estimated that there's anywhere between one and two million people in the United States who have aphasia. Is it mostly older people? Um, you know, yes and no. So it's it's kind of interesting because some of the more recent statistics have shown that the the number of strokes in younger people has been increasing in the past several years. And it's really still unclear why that would be. Um, but so we, t- we tend to think about aphasia and stroke as being an old older person's um, disease and disorder, but um, more and more young younger people are developing stroke and aphasia. Um, and similarly, is it more, do you see it more in men or women? Um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think that there's... Uh, Probably falls along stroke um, I, Yeah, data. yeah. I don't think there's more, a greater chance of either men or women having aphasia. Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Ellen Riley. Uh, she's the director of the Aphasia Lab at Syracuse University. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, but tell me a little more about how aphasia affects a person's ability to communicate. Sure. So with aphasia, there are several different types of aphasia. So some people have more difficulty understanding, other people have more difficulty expressing, and then, um, but most people have some difficulty with both of those both of those things. So you can imagine that in communication, we have to be able to understand and also express ourselves. So that can, that can complicate things. So when somebody is trying to communicate that, um, with another person, then the other person may not understand, uh, what's, what's going on with that person with aphasia. And so the communication breakdown often occurs because of a lack of understanding about the disorder. Okay. Are there um, tips for, I mean, how, how can you still communicate with yes. someone that's aphasic? Yeah, absolutely. So there's some things that you can do as um, the person without aphasia communicating, and then there's some things you can do to encourage the person who has aphasia. So just some general tips. Of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different, and some, and everybody's going to have their own preferences. So one thing I always like to tell people is to just ask the individual. So ask them what is what are some things that they prefer when you're communicating with them. Because oftentimes they'll be able to tell you, or, or sometimes they have um, a card that. That tells that will tell their uh, the person they're communicating with some tips that work for them. So a lot of people who have aphasia do have those those resources with them. But just some general tips for communicating things like maintaining eye contact, um, making sure to reduce background noise. So it can be really difficult for somebody who has a language disorder to process information even without background noise, but the background noise can just complicate that even further. So reducing background noise, maintaining eye contact, making sure you have the person's attention before you start speaking. Also things like um, simplifying your sentence structure. But the key to that is remembering that the person that you're talking with is an intelligent 
adult and not speaking to them as if they're a child and not raising your voice um, as if they have uh, a hearing impairment. It's not a hearing impairment, but it's a language. It's a difficulty comprehending language. And so those are different things. So not making assumptions that they can't hear you, um, but trying to simplify your your language structure a bit um, and slow down your speech a little. So some other things that you can that you can do to encourage the person with aphasia is to let them speak and give them time to speak. Often, you know, we as the the listener try to jump in because we feel uh, and this, this urgency to try to to fill the space and try to guess at what they're trying to communicate, and that can be very frustrating for some individuals who have aphasia. So try to resist the urge to jump in and and finish their sentences for them. Also providing them with other kinds of communication tools. So um, a lot of people with aphasia have developed strategies for drawing or writing um, or being able to cue themselves with maybe a, a written a written letter, written word. So what, providing. What about electronics? Yes, that's a great texting question. Texting or email. Yes. And- yes. So um, one challenge with that is understanding that uh, that with language writing is often affected. So it's not just a matter of being able to provide somebody with um, with a, an electronic device that will then allow them to communicate, but there are definitely some tools that are available um, through phones and iPads and things of that nature that will assist with communication. Interesting. Well, are there any um, treatments or therapies that make aphasia uh, reduce its severity or, or cure it? Um, so I wouldn't say that there is a, a quote-unquote cure for aphasia, but there are definitely treatments um, that are available that can reduce the impact of aphasia and improve language outcomes um, post, uh, post-stroke. And most of the time, somebody who has aphasia is going to see a speech-language pathologist, and the speech-language pathologist is likely to provide a variety of different kinds of um, treatments uh, to try to address that person's communication difficulty. So on um, part of the treatment will probably address the, the, the sort of the specific uh, language difficulty that the person is having. So, for example, if the person has a lot of difficulty um, coming up or putting together grammatical sentences, then the treatment in the therapy room might focus on how do you actually uh, uh, focus on relearning how to put together grammatical oh. sentences. So very focused on, on the impairment in s- itself, improving the impairment. Um, but other parts of the treatment are likely to focus on trying to come up with strategies and use strategies in real life that will help the person communicate. So doing things like self-cueing and, and trying to, to draw something that they're not able to express through words. So using other kinds of um, strategies that will assist with the actual communication in real life. So it's often a combination of those two um, kinds of approaches that are the most effective. The um, aphasia lab at SU, is that, do you have speech language pathologists there? Is that where you see people? So, so I am a, um, a speech language pathologist, and I do see individuals not for clinical therapy, but for in the context of research studies. Okay. So the lab is more for research? Yes, the lab okay. is for research. So tell me, um, are there any recent findings that you can share? Yes. Uh, so we just published something a few months ago, kind of some interesting preliminary work looking at um, using activity from the brain, so electrical activity of the brain measured by EEG, and using that activity to predict error responses within um, a naming task. So people who have aphasia, one of the most uh, universal difficulties that they have is coming up with 
uh, coming up with words. So word finding difficulty within conversation. Also, if you give them um, a, a bunch of pictures, they often have difficulty coming up with the names for, for some of those pictures. And this is something that is not always consistent. So if you show them a picture of a bird, one day they might not be able to name bird, but then the next day they might be able to name bird just fine. So this is not, it's not always the same pictures okay. that you get errors on. But um, so you're going to, so, so in our study, we we're looking at, can we actually predict when the person is able or when a per person is going to be correct or incorrect or produce a specific type of error? So some of our recent findings suggest that, yes, we actually can look at the, the electrical activity of the brain and, um, and tell whether or not the person is going to make an error. So what, where is this going to be useful? Well, as we develop this, we want to develop this as a clinical tool so that uh, eventually we can inform clinicians and possibly even the clients themselves about what's, what their brain is doing. And so we could pr potentially provide more, um, more effective feedback or, or cueing before they even make a response. Do you have other studies um, that are being done now? Yes. So one study that we're working on right now is actually looking at um, fluctuations in cognitive fatigue and attention um, during a sort of a simulated speech therapy session. So one uh, complaint that a lot of people who have stroke and aphasia have, it has to do with the amount of fatigue that they experience. Um, we don't really know the source of this fatigue, and this is another thing that I hope to explore in the lab. However, we know that this happens. This is something that um, that uh, speech language pathologists observe this is something that clients report um, that they experience this kind of fatigue. So what we're asking now is do these fluctuations in attention, presumably due to this cognitive fatigue, do they actually impact the performance within the therapy session and does that eventually impact uh, uh, ultimately speech and language recovery? Well, interesting. It sounds like you've got a lot going on there. And I know um, listeners can check uh, the aphasialab.syr.edu website to learn about what you have going on at any point in time. Yes. Um, and then the phone number 315-443-8688 if anyone wants to learn more, right? Yes. Okay. My guest has been Assistant Professor in Communication Sciences and Disorders, Ellen Riley, Director of the Syracuse University Aphasia Lab. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.